0: Have you ever thought about how power can be used to create the conditions for organizational exceptionalism? Well I'll tell you what keep listening because in this podcast we are going to dive into all of this and more. My name is Paul Aladinika, and this is the 11th Thing podcast. Welcome to episode two of this podcast, which focuses on the six organizational power principles. If you've not had the opportunity to listen to episode one of the series, which focused on the five cultures of organizational exceptionalism, I strongly recommend that you you do that. Uh, But then again, I would. Anyway, for this episode, first, I'm going to provide some context by describing what power is and why you should care about it in your organizations. Then I'm going to touch on how power works in an organizational setting. I think you'll find that really interesting, actually, because I'm going to be challenging some of the common perceptions about organizational power when I, when I describe that. Uh, then I'm going to cover how power can be effectively harnessed to create the conditions for organizational exceptionalism. So these are essentially the six organizational power principles. And finally, I'm going to round off with some key takeaways for you which hopefully you'll find useful, uh, whether you're a frontline worker or a manager or an organizational executive. And I'm sure all three of these groups listen to the podcast. OK, so let's, uh, let's start with, with power. You know, what is power? Well, the Oxford Dictionary describes power as the ability or capacity to do something or act in a particular way. So it gives an example of the power of speech as a case in point. And it also describes it as the capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. And here it gives an example of a political process that offers people power over their own lives. And I think there's a perfectly generic definition of power, and I'm happy to go with that in the generic sense. But what about in an organizational context? I mean, what is power? Well, here's my take. I think in any organization, power is whatever is allowed. To become powerful. So it's whatever motivates or demotivates employees in the workforce, whatever encourages or discourages them, whatever causes you to be inspired or indeed indifferent that has power. So just think about it. If you come to work and you work with a group of colleagues that you really enjoy working with and you find that your interaction with them on a daily basis really propels and increases your productivity level, there's power in that relationship. There is something about your interaction with them that generates this power, which encourages and motivates you to perform even better. And likewise, if you're working with a group of people that just seems to sap that energy out of you, well, that relationship also has power. So power has quite a dynamic quality to it. So think about it. You know, nothing happens in an organization without Power. Leaders are not developed. Workforce capacity is not effectively utilized. Investment cannot be maximized. Objectives cannot be achieved. Power is truly all-encompassing. At its best, it can be used to achieve anything, and at its worst, it can be used to destroy everything. We'll touch on some of the dynamics of power further on. So a bit more on the context, a few other points to contextualize what power is and to get you thinking about where it is or isn't in your organizations. So the first the first point I just wanna make about this sort of additional contextual framework is that organizational power is often thought about, and I certainly have sort of thought about it this way myself, as an inverted pyramid. So you think about an upside down pyramid. The traditional view of power is that most power in an organization is at the top. So again, you think of an upside down pyramid, you think of all of the power at the top and less power at the bottom. Actually, that's not true power in organizations, I would think about it in the context of an upright pyramid, an organization's true power is its massively untapped social resource, which is based on the quality of relationships. So if you think about social power in an organization, it's the quality of relationships, the trust, the competence that exists between colleagues. And, And again, now think of an upright pyramid, because most of an organization's social power is at the bottom of the pyramid, not the top. So that's how I think about power. I think about it as an upright pyramid with the greater share of the power at the bottom. So that's where social power is. It's not at the top. At the top is hierarchical power, but we'll touch on that in just a moment. So, however, across organizations, the social structure and mechanisms of power are either not well understood or not well developed. But the fact that something is underdeveloped doesn't mean that it does not exist. Social power, when I think about it, is not the power to instruct or direct, but rather the power to get things done. So again, think about if you're given an instruction or a direction, think about how you respond to that. And think about how much more productively you perform when the quality of relationships that you have with the people that you work with or the people that supervise you is really good. What happens? You feel much more motivated. You feel much more energized and you feel much more productive and i think that's an important point other contextual points to note here everyone has power power is not just a hierarchical construct and concept individuals have power and they exercise that power as individuals. They exercise power through teams, through clusters, uh, through the power of collective decision-making. When a manager makes a decision, there's power, but there's also power in the reaction. So when a person decides that they've had enough and they decide that they're going to make a formal complaint or they're not going to do something, that's power. Power can be used to empower and also to disempower. It can be used in a very deliberate way to equip, engage, and enable people, but it can also be used in a very deliberate way to disenfranchise through exclusion and undermining and there are different types of power. I've touched on the sort of hard power of authority, command, instruction, direction. But then there is the, the soft power of gratitude, thank you, of empathy, are you okay? Of compassion, do you need a hand with anything? Of humility, I'm sorry, or of encouragement, you're doing a great job. These are organizational superpowers that to be fair, they're often underutilized. And then there's grip and control. And grip and control is often presented, I think, in a way that is misleading, I think in less mature organizations, grip and control is seen as an exercise of organizational authority. So those in positions of authority decide to assert control over a particular area or issue where they feel there has not been sufficient control. And I think this is because I think this particular impulse is often because organizations don't Have a sufficiently well-developed social hierarchy and they don't understand how social power works in an organization. So they default to, they default to the use of authority as an exercise of grip and control. I think what they fail to realize is that when an organization has well-developed social structures, grip and control is a function that is performed intuitively. People intuitively do things. They intuitively have grip and intuitively have control. And it's intuitive at every organizational layer when there are strong social structures. It's second nature. It doesn't need to be dictated or directed. Left to their own devices, I genuinely do believe employees will solve their own problems and won't need to be prodded and poked and directed and instructed. So grip and control should be the product of intuition, not instruction. If you are a manager or executive and you are having to instruct your way to grip and control, then your organization is probably not very healthy. So then the final point on context before i get into the principles is how power manifests itself in organizations and i'm going to look at both sides of the ledger here i'm going to look at the sort of the positive and the negative aspects or ways in which power is exercised in organizations so the positives for me reason power of reason so the ability to apply logic weigh up evidence and reach informed and balanced conclusions i mean who would disagree with that the power of presence and absence that's a really interesting one so see how people behave in the presence of a senior person when a senior person is in the room or when they are absent there's a power of presence, there's no doubt about it, both presence and absence. The power of silence and how sometimes when a leader chooses to be silent to give other people the opportunity to express a view can be a key way in which capacity and potential of leaders is developed and matured. So the power of silence can be used very, very effectively and very, very well. The power of persuasion to exert influence and to steer employees or organizational Activity and resource and capacity in a particular direction to achieve particular outcomes The power of collaboration cooperation to promote inclusion engagement and participation and then you've got you know, the power of courtesy Please sorry. Thank you the power of inspiration to encourage and motivate power of forgiveness and so on and so forth so power really can be used in a very very powerful way and again when you think about it a lot of the examples that I've just given have nothing to do with the organizational hierarchy. They are very much part of the social power network, the social power framework of an organization, but nonetheless are really effective ways to exercise power. And then the other side of the ledger, what I would describe as uh, negative, uses of power and it it is unfortunate but it's also an unfortunate truth that power can be used to abuse and it can be used in an entirely malevolent and destructive way so for example where power is being abused people can get into a sort of power stockholm syndrome particularly where they become almost desensitized and socialized to the idea of abuse of power and the thing about desensitization and socialization is oftentimes they lead to normalization they create a state of mind where employees think that it is normal for power to be abused or for them to be abused uh, in a power relationship. People stop talking, they stop challenging and a climate of fear sets in and very quickly the workplace and the organizational environment becomes quite toxic. Here's an interesting one that might challenge you, reciprocity. I think that's a negative use of power Because it's the power of conditionality. It's purely transactional reciprocity. Do remember that. It's a purely transactional use of power. And the reason why I think it's negative is that it can lead to coercive control. So think about an, an equal power dynamic where someone does something for someone else. So, for example, a manager does something for a subordinate. In that situation, it's very difficult for a subordinate to equalize that relationship by doing something of equal value for the manager. And then suddenly you may potentially have a situation where the manager has leverage over that member of staff. If not for me, you wouldn't have this. Remember that it can be quite coercive. And that's why reciprocity is a negative use of power. And then, of course, you have other uses of power, uh, which for me are very negative, obviously intimidation, harassment, threats, exclusion, condescension, and even the legitimate use of power, demands and direction. They can be used and exercised in a way that creates or leads to intimidation and harassment. So that's some context, both in terms of what I think power is and how I think power works. So let's move on to the Power Principles. So how organizations can harness power to create the conditions for organizational exceptionalism. So these are the six power principles. Principle number one, map your power landscape. So essentially, find out who wields power, how they wield it, why and under what conditions. So again, remember, everyone has power in your organization. You need to think about what the you need to find out what the power prisms are and what the power archetypes are in your organization. And let me give you a a framework that I sometimes use when I think about power in an organization. So there are a number of archetypes and I'll just very quickly go through them. And from your organizational perspective, think about how they might be used and how they might be applied. So the first archetype is the altruist. The altruist will do the right thing irrespective of whether they're instructed to do the right thing. They are busy doing the right thing. And that's how they use power to do the right thing. Whether anyone is looking, whether anyone asks, whether anyone cares, that's the altruist. The second archetype is the realist. The realist will always try to make the best of whatever situation they find themselves in. They might need a bit of prodding and poking, but they are genuinely orientated towards doing the right thing wherever they can. The third archetype is the idealist. The idealist is a peddler of possibilities. They think the right thing. They believe the right thing. Not always doing the right thing, but they know it's the right thing to do. And they talk the talk. That's for sure. Don't always walk the walk. Then you get into the pragmatist. That's the fourth archetype. The pragmatist will always weigh and measure risks and consequences for themselves and those closest to them. They're constantly weighing things up and making the determination as to whether they should or whether they shouldn't. How will they be positioned? What might be best for them? What might the consequences be for them? And then, of course, you've got the pessimist and the pessimist exercises will will exercise power purely through the prism of dissent and obstruction. And the key for every organization is to see how and to what extent you might be able to shift individuals in each of those archetypal constructs upwards. So in an ideal world, you want everyone in your organization to be an altruist. Obviously, that's not necessarily possible, but you certainly don't want to have the majority of the people in your organization being pessimistic and using their power in a pessimistic way, because then you have a real problem. That is real organizational toxicity. You may want to use these archetypes, as I mentioned, to see how your organization might be able to use power in a much more dynamic and effective way. And and it's certainly, as I said, I've sometimes used this as a prism for assessing and evaluating how power is used in an organization. Again, this is about understanding how it works, why it works, where it works, and when it works. The key thing is that you cannot rewire the power circuitry of your organization if you don't know the answers to these questions. Okay, the second power principle, understand your power climate. So what are the existing social norms? behaviors, attitudes, customs, conventions as they relate to power. If you don't know, then find out because that is your baseline. Have honest discussions with within your organization to better understand what you do well and what you don't do so well and what you can do better. Self-awareness is the first step on the road to self-improvement. If you do not even recognize what is wrong or right, how will you know where you can improve? You also need to think about The kind of organization you are, are you a cooperative, collaborative organization or a compliance and consequence driven organization? And again, think about it in a very linear way. Organizations where people choose to cooperate and collaborate are less demanding in terms of managerial effort, the investment of managerial time, effort, and energy. Organizations are quite compliance driven. Well, think about compliance. Compliance is about instruction and direction. That is quite managerially Intensive. It's, it's quite high maintenance in terms of managerial time. And of course, organizations that are consequence driven, i.e. you constantly find yourself having to performance manage individuals or take them through performance management processes. They are massively time intensive in terms of supervisory and management time. So you, know, you think about it, cooperation is, is sort of high social power because people do the right thing. Compliance is high hierarchical and directive power. And consequence is the highest level of hierarchical and directive power in terms of the demands on managerial time. But yeah, think about your organizations in terms of the power climate. What is the power climate? What kind of an organization are we? What shape are we? And what sort of demands do we make of managerial time, and also how effectively do we utilize the social power in the context of being a cooperative organization. So the third power principle, with those holding hierarchical power, do not assume that because they have it, that they know how to use it. As someone who has worked in a number of different sectors, I've worked in the voluntary sector, I've worked in the private sector, I've worked in the public sector. So I've worked across multiple sectors in various organizations. You can't simply assume that because people have power that they know how to use it. Don't assume it. And I think if you do assume it, that may be your first mistake, but it may also turn out to be your last mistake. Teach managers how to use power. And it it is a shame. In many ways, it's not just a shame, it's also quite extraordinary the idea that people promoted into positions of seniority may not know how to use power. It's actually very true. And I'm sure many people listening into this podcast will probably recognize someone in your organization. You think, yeah, actually, that person probably doesn't know what power is for. Power is there to lift people up, it is not there to subjugate them. Again, don't assume that people know how to use power. Put in place programs, development programs that will support them to use power effectively and produce the best outcomes for employees. And if you're producing the best outcomes for your employees, your employees will be working just as hard to produce the best outcomes for your customers. Principle number four, confront the power rangers in your organization. How power is exercised in an organisation is a reflection of that organisation. Don't be afraid to challenge bad practice. Once you know what power is, what it is not, and how you want to harness it, you will need to have some difficult conversations with organisational outliers, so managers and people in positions of authority that are exercising power in an abusive way. Practices need to be addressed and corrected. I often describe it this way. In the context of power, organisations need to... Eliminate good practice by creating common practice. Good practice is relative. The only reason why you have good practice is because there's bad practice. You wouldn't have good practice if if you didn't have bad practice. So you need to eliminate good practice by creating a framework of common practice. And there may be people in your organizations who do not know the difference between lordship and leadership, and they need to be taught. They need to be taught. And if people in your organization won't come into line, and operate within the framework that you have established then you need to think about whether or not they are suitable for the positions that you have put them in i think of power again a bit like a box of matches you know power can be used to light the cooker and make dinner or it could be used to burn the house down you know you need to choose which one works best for you Principle number five, never, ever allow it to be concentrated. So never allow power to be concentrated in the hands of a few. What you concentrate in the hands of a few will ultimately be to the detriment of the many. And I think it's an important point to to bear in mind. Expect and demand that there is a routine of delegation to the lowest and most appropriate level in your organization. And just to sort of clarify, I am not suggesting that you give the keys to the treasury to the accountancy apprentice. But I am suggesting that you invite the accountancy apprentice to meetings so that they can understand that with power comes responsibility. That's how you lay the groundwork for delegation, redistribution, dispersal, dissipation, and reassignment of power. That's how you do it. And principle number six, cultivate but do not control power so cultivate but do not control power where is your organization on the power spectrum are you on the cultivate end of the spectrum or are you on the control end of the spectrum you don't need to be on the control end you need to be cultivating power stimulate don't stifle encourage employees to use power in certain ways make the case win the argument have the discussions power is a fact of organizational existence attempting to control it is an act of organizational weakness, put in the hard miles to get the best results. A mature organization looks to tap into and harness the energy of particularly social power to improve its functionality. And as you get from the way in which the messages from this podcast are being delivered, I think social power is the great untapped resource of every organization. Okay, so what are the key takeaways from from this message, from this podcast? I think first of all, Power is one of the key organizational cultures. It is absolutely abundant across organizations. Think of it this way. If power were a consumer product, organizations would be saturated with it. Yet, despite this, supply does not seem to meet demand. And the reason for this is because of leakage and wastage. Organizations simply fail to effectively utilize what they have. When used effectively, power is an amazing resource that can do incredible things. It can have transformational impacts and produce meaningful and long-standing results. However, organizations need to develop a mature relationship with power, starting with improving their understanding of social power. The aim should be to understand and cultivate it, but not control it. Remember, at their heart, your employees want to do the right things. Therefore, incentivize them but do not interfere. Stimulate, but do not stifle. Okay, and that's it from me on the six principles of organizational power. But before I sign off, can I ask that you please share this podcast across your social networks? Please also check out episode one of the 11th Thing podcast, which focused on the five cultures of organizational exceptionalism. If you want to know more about the issues being covered in this series, head over to Believeonomics on YouTube for a sneak peek. There are a range of videos there, which I am sure you'll find really, really interesting. Finally, you may also want to check out Paula Ladanica on Medium.com. That's me, Paula Ladanica, where I post a new blog once a week. Thanks for listening.